I'm Knut Witkowski. I was at the Rockefeller University. I have been an epidemiologist for 35 years. Why do you think there is so much pushback to your line of thinking? I'm not paid by the government. So I, I'm entitled to actually do science. Social distancing definitely is good. It prevented the sky from falling down. Are you being ironic? The second wave is a direct consequence of social distancing. You, you, you keep people in lockdown and you try and vaccinate as many of them as possible. Never been done before. Do you think that's a sensible approach? These stories are circulating the world and contributing to people being afraid of things they shouldn't be afraid of. We should go back to be a strong economy, to work, to have a social life, to let children being educated, do everything our society should do. And that lockdown is, there's no benefit, it has only negative effects. Hi there, my name is Rob Verkirk. Welcome back to Speaking Naturally. Today we're going to be talking to Dr. Witkowski. He has a PhD in computer science from the University of Stuttgart and a Doctor of Science in Medical Biometry from the Erbhardt Karls University in Tübingen, both of them obviously in Germany. He worked for 15 years with Dr. Klaus Dietz at the University of Tübingen, who's a leading epidemiologist who coined the term reproduction number, focusing particularly on the epidemiology of HIV. Then for 20 years, he headed the Department of Research, Design and Biostatistics at the Rockefeller University in New York. He's currently the founder and CEO of Astera LLC, a company discovering novel treatments for complex diseases using data from genome-wide association, GWAS studies. Dr. Witkowski was one of the earliest critics of lockdowns, being very outspoken as early as April 2020, saying that all lockdowns would do is delay the time before herd immunity was achieved, costing huge numbers of lives in the process. Many ways his views were amongst the earliest to frame what later became the Great Barrington Declaration, which of course was not taken seriously enough by governments. There are now around 30 studies that support what Dr. Witkowski was saying on lockdowns, showing that they don't work, yet governments continue to use them as the primary non-pharmaceutical strategy against SARS-CoV-2. Nearly a year on, we thought it was high time to see where Dr. Witkowski was in terms of his views. Um, and in fact, it was great that he approached us before we approached him. So I'm gonna be asking Dr. Witkowski where he's at with his views on lockdowns, where we are in the current epidemic cycle, what roles vaccines may or may not play, where we might be in a year from now, and what he thinks our exit strategy might be if governments and society are going to seriously look at trying to curb the ever greater amounts of collateral damage being caused to people's lives and livelihoods. Dr. Kwiatkowski, it's absolutely fantastic to have you um, here so we can- um, Thank you for having me. We can speak naturally. We can, we can actually have an open discourse. Um, I thought we'd kick off just looking at this um, issue of censorship and being heard. Um, do you feel as a science scientist censored? Do you feel heard? 
Um, ha has that whole environment changed over the last 12 months? I don't feel censored. So if I want to publish somewhere, I think, and I did in March, I published a paper uh, arguing that the lockdowns would be unnecessary and actually counterproductive. And then one should rather allow the vulnerable to self-isolate, which later become, became the policy or the recommendation of the Great Barrington Declaration. And there was no censorship. Um, the problem is that the politicians uh, hear only or listen only to the scientists that they pay and so that they can be sure that the scientists they listen to tell them what they want to hear. And scientists who have a different opinion are not included in the discussion. They're not invited by the media. They are censored by the media, uh, including uh, now, YouTube, they censored me a few times, and other institutions. But it's not the, uh, the scientific journals, uh, the scientific dispute uh, can be had and has not been uh, burdened by this. No. So, so in, in a way, you, are, you, you have been censored on social media. And I think when we think of censorship, we think now because social media really has a very different position in terms of the public dialogue, there is an awful lot of censorship going on there. Do you think you're being heard by other scientists or was it just convenient when you publish papers, for example, about the lack of um, scientific evidence for a lockdown? Do you think it's just convenient for those papers to be ignored? So if you like, there can be a, a selective um, handling of evidence, which is really as bad uh, from my point of view as a scientist, you know, we, we've always been uh, led to believe that we have to look at the totality of evidence and, and not cherry pick. But unfortunately, it seems that, that now the situation does allow for cherry picking of science. Yeah, uh, but this is a problem yeah, we have these different levels and things are now shifting to the social media and the social media um, don't understand science and the social media, uh, I don't think they fully understand their role yet. So there are now much college kids who are screening um, videos for certain keywords and if a keyword is there, it's being blocked. Uh, this is definitely not a mature process yet, and I hope that this will mature over time. And, and it has a political dimension. Well, look, let's, let's kick off. Um, your background as an epidemiologist. We're going to just start. I'd love to get your views on where you believe we are from an epidemiological point of view in terms of the pandemic. Okay, we have actually several epidemics running here. We had one from a virus strain that started in Wuhan and then mutated on its way to Milano. Um, we don't know exactly where that mutation happened. That was a 601 mutation. And then it spread widely across Europe, the United States, the whole world. And it would have been over in May or June maybe a bit later in the South, if 
the governments had not resorted to something that was entirely new, that had never been done before, and that is the lockdowns isolating not those who are infected or those who are uh, vulnerable, but isolating the whole population, delaying the natural process of a respiratory virus disease epidemic to reach her herd immunity, which takes per in every location about six weeks. And instead they were extending it over for two, three months or longer, giving the virus the time it needs to develop the successive mutations to escape the polyclonal human immune response. And once the virus has acquired all of these five, six, or how many mutations that are necessary, then we have another epidemic that spreads as if there had been nothing before, even though it is very closely related. And we have seen that originally in the strains that came from Spain and France, in Spain, where we had the most rigid or draconian lockdown in Europe. Surprising that they uh, incubated the first resistant strain, which then spread to Europe, uh, first to the UK and then uh, to all parts of the world. And that was the epidemic that started in October, November. And from then on, we have seen many more because the same problem now arises everywhere in the world where the governments are doing lockdowns. For the first time in history, we, we've got uh, a disease being controlled largely by politicians rather than doctors or scientists. Um, but, but the politicians are, of course, saying that we're taking our advice from the best scientists in the world. But uh, in the process, they, they have uh, marginalized a lot of people that don't speak to the same narrative of lockdowns. But it, it's a very counterintuitive process for a politician to understand that the lockdown is actually creating more problems than it's resolving. And it is also interesting, I have seen, um, I, I think now it's close on 30 papers that are suggesting that, that lockdowns do not serve any purpose. And of course, we, we've all seen consistent data that there is no relationship between countries that have locked down very stringently um, versus those that haven't. So when you look at the countries that have had more severe problems, what factors do you think are drivers? Is it to do with the specific viral variant there? Is it to, to do with the number of cases, the, how busy an airport was, for example, the number of people that were initial case zeros? What are the factors that have caused it to behave so differently in different parts of the world? The virus has not behaved differently from any other respiratory uh, disease virus. If we had not had the capability to sequence the virus in January and to identify, oops, it's not influenza, it's corona, uh, we would not even have noticed. It would have been just another flu. It was just, the sequencing is relatively new and we had had only two known coronavirus infections before during the 20th century. And so people got very confused and fearful about it. 
especially after seeing that in Italy, in the north of Italy, a lot of old people died in nursing homes. And so there the hospital system was stressed, which was in part a local problem of the Italian hospital system. But it was understandable that people were fearful in March 2020, a year ago. And the idea of flattening the curve, well, I was never convinced, but I could understand that politicians would resort to that after having seen the hospital system in Italy being under severe duress. But a month later in the US on April the 17th, the then director of the CDC, Robert Redfield, presented data at the White House. And the data showed that the this was the third uh, flu that year. There was one that season, there was one of influenza B, then one of influenza A, and then one of COVID. And hospital admissions or people showing up in hospitals because of either of these three had already ceased. We're down to normal levels. And so it was clear in April that the lockdowns were unnecessary, at least in the United States and same in Europe. And therefore they should have ended as was originally planned. The people were told we will just lock down for a month or so uh, to make sure the hospitals don't get overloaded. The hospitals didn't get overloaded and one could have reopened in April. It is unclear until today why that did not happen. There was no evidence, no data that would say we need more lockdowns which had never been done before and we didn't really know what they do, although it was clear what the risks are. The risks of lockdowns are twofold. The first is that during the lockdown, if you flatten the curve, if, you, I, if everybody is treated the same, if everybody distances, if everybody wears masks, then the vulnerable, those who are old and have comorbidities, don't have an advantage anymore by doing so. So if they were the only people who would self-isolate, wear masks, not taking the subway, might not going to uh, big events, they would be spared while the virus spreads among the young and healthy. And then it's over after a short period of time, let's say six weeks, and then the vulnerable can come back and it's over because the vulnerable and the young and healthy have reached herd immunity. Instead, with the lockdowns, everybody is treating, treated the same. And because everybody is treated the same, the virus spreads the same. So many more of the old and people with comorbidities, they get infected and they are the people who die. So lockdowns are not saving lives, they're costing lives. I think in one of the papers I've read of yours, you, you, you have been an advocate for a very limited type of lockdown a month 
after peak infection, and there are data to support that? Yes, uh, there are data to support that, yeah, if the hospital system is really on the verge of collapsing, then uh, it is advisable to do something like that. But once you know the hospital system is not collapsing, and in New York, the hospital ship had theft, wasn't used. The Javits Center, the conference center had 2,000 beds, not used. There were tents in Central Park by Mount Sinai Hospital, not used. So there was no threat for the uh, hospital system. And so you could have reopened. And it, as I said, it's un totally unclear why the lockdowns were not ended after it was clear that the hospital system was capable of handling that. Yeah, absolutely. So when you look at um, naturally acquired herd immunity, let's let's we will get on to talking briefly on on, on vaccines. But um, prior to vaccines coming along, um, were there any countries in your view that were starting to approach some kind of useful level of herd immunity? And I'd also like you to address the question of whether the herd immunity thresholds that, that do have a number of assumptions built into them, such as equal mixing of populations, an issue that you've just mentioned, are, are reasonable. So, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a, certainly a question mark over whether the Swedish policy of a light lockdown was actually generating some level of, of herd immunity. Um, can you just take us through that view, really, in terms of naturally acquired herd immunity? Every respiratory disease virus epidemic, everyone, every of them, ends with herd immunity. Mm. There is no other way for an epidemic to end. So it's not an invention, it's not a politic, it's not a strategy, it's just the way nature regulates uh, epidemics. Respiratory disease epidemics end with herd immunity after a couple of weeks. So there are two things you can do. If you have a vaccine, which is very difficult. We know that from influenza vaccines, the influenza vaccines never really fit and always come too late. So there is no, there are no good vaccines. But if you have a vaccine, even if it's only partially affected, effective, you can reduce the time it takes to reach herd immunity because you don't have to wait until people get infected. You just vaccinate them and then it gets faster. That makes sense. There's no reason against that. The problem is, if at the same time you do mitigation or lockdowns, you're doing something that is the exact opposite. You are flattening the curve. You're delaying the time until you have herd immunity. So this makes as much sense as sitting in a car and hitting the brake and the gas at the same time. You're not going getting anywhere uh, unless unless not. unless you try unless you try and vaccinate seventy to ninety percent of the population, which is, if you like, the mainstream dominant strategy that's going on at the moment. You 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 keep people in lockdown and you try and vaccinate as many of them as possible. Never been done before. Do you think that's a sensible approach? Okay, 
let's talk about real numbers, not the numbers that American politicians like Anthony Fauci um, spill at any point in time. And it, it's a different number virtually every month uh, because the politics are changing. I'm, I'm glad you call. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm also glad that you call Fauci a, a politician. I think he's he is a scientist, an immunologist uh, turned politician. But but a very good point made. I think he was a scientist maybe 40 years ago or something. At some point in time, he was a scientist, but he has been uh, in a political, highly political administrative position uh, now for how long? 40 years? 40 years, yeah. And uh, so he has turned, I would say, mostly to a politician because I don't hear him say anything uh, that's based on science anymore. Everything he says is based on politics. And he acknowledges that. He says, yeah, well, uh, then I gave you another number because it was politically inopportune to say what I'm saying now. And so it's politics, it's not science. So let's let's get back to these real numbers. So, so I think what you're getting to is that the idea of getting to 70% to 90% coverage with a vaccine um, is is an improbable idea. Is that right? It's absurd. Where, where do you think we'll get to in terms of coverage, say, in the United States? Okay. As early as in a year ago in March, Sunetra Gupta said that we probably need to have about 50% of the population being immune because the basic reproduction number is somewhere around two. Um, but however, about 25% of people have cross immunity from previous coronavirus infections. So we need only 25% of people need to get infected or vaccinated. So that is the number and we have seen that actually we had the number of new infections going down in New York City to zero, near zero in May or June. And when antibodies were tested, we had 25% um, of people were antibody positive in overall. So what she said in March was, and this was not the only case, it was confirmed in many studies thereafter. This is about what we need. We already have 25% of cross immunity, 25% of the people need to acquire immunity, either through infection or through vaccination. Uh, and so the, the reasonable strategy would have been to test people for antibodies and vaccinate those people who don't have antibodies. And then we would have uh, reached that point that people want to reach much earlier. But the problem now with respiratory virus diseases is that at the time the vaccine was developed and came to the market uh, after the election on November 4th, surprisingly, um, in November, the strain, the virus strain, the Wuhan Milano virus strain, against which the vaccine had been developed, was not circulating anymore. We, at that time, we had the strains that were incubated in Spain and France. 
but the new strains incubated in Spain and France were not available at the time the vaccines were designed. So the vaccines were designed to create immunity against a strain against that didn't exist anymore and had been replaced by strains that evolved to escape the immune natural immunity and likely at least part of the vaccine induced immunity. So, so we have the typical situation that the vaccines come at a time where the disease isn't there anymore. And that is not uh, what we actually want. Yeah, uh, this is a very important point in the sense that, that um, prior to the vaccines, there was uh, some cross immunity from people who had exposure to the common cold coronaviruses. Um, with the evolution of new variants that, that you're arguing have been um, developed because of the extent of lockdowns, um, that cross immunity has, has now disappeared to a large extent. We don't really know that much about what level of cross immunity we have, but I don't think it uh, changed very much. What, what do you think in, ter in terms of the virulence and um, also the transmissibility? There's been a lot of talk about increased transmissibility, perhaps less talk about increased virulence. Do you think there's, uh, if you look at the development of this virus, is it turning into um, uh, virus variants that are, if you like, settling into, um, uh, you know, I've, I've read a number of papers from evolutionary microbiologists who are saying that the, the evolution will settle down fairly soon. There will be a limited number of additional um, variants and we will the whole thing will settle down, then the vaccines will catch up, and then it will all be under control. Do you think that's a plausible hypothesis? Or will the virus continue to outsmart the development of, of new vaccines, which we know a number of the leading vaccine companies are already working on? Okay, viruses mutate, and they have evolutionary pressure to mutate in two directions and two dimensions, I should say. One is the disease gets milder because a virus that kills the host can spread less. So disease severity is not something the virus is good for the spread of the virus. The virus evolves to have milder and milder forms so that more and more people get infected, remain alive, spread the virus. Uh, it can become more infectious, so more of the people get infected. But in the end, we have a situation where everybody gets infected and nobody knows about it. Because there's no phenotype anymore. So that would be the natural end of an epidemic. It, the virus would be around. We have lots of viruses around here that uh, we get infected with if you so we develop antibodies against typically as children and nobody knows even what the diseases that they are causing because there's no phenotype anymore they come they spread and it's over and that is a normal course of evolution Co correct so so uh, th there is an argument i mean i think it's politically um, become unacceptable for anyone to use this idea of 
running its course. But of course, whatever we do, it is going to run its course with or without vaccines. So I just want to come back to this idea. Okay, uh, I would like to go to the vaccine. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there is right now a discussion whether mass vaccination is bad. And it definitely is not. There's no reason to be afraid of vaccination other than the usual adverse events that we have. Um, you may say, I fear the adverse events more than the actual disease because it tends to be very mild. It, people can have that position, but there is no whatever evidence that shows that um, vaccination causes new strains or anything. It is just we're adding a couple of antibodies to the repertoire that we have. And having more antibodies makes us a bit more resistant to infections. And in the end, that reduces the time until we reach herd immunity, which reduces the risk of resistant strains from emerging. So vaccines are good although they are probably not as helpful as the politicians were hoping them to be. Do, do you think there is a fundamental difference when we're looking at um, essentially synthetic biology vaccines, um, looking at the, the, the notion? Interesting that we had a, a huge discussion over 25 years or more about whether we should uh, consume genetically modified foods. We're now moving to gene-edited foods, and we're moving to synthetic biology vaccines. For you, do you see any delineation between this idea of using, say, attenuated viruses? I think for many members of the public, they don't necessarily realize that the kind of vaccine that they're being exposed to, at least from the front run of vaccines, is a pretty different beast to the smallpox vaccine or the measles vaccine that, that gets advertised to them that you can see in the textbooks. What is your view on that? Okay, attenuated viruses are uh, natural, uh, but they have a risk. And an attenuated virus can mutate back to the original virus and then cause the disease. And we have seen that in isolated cases. That can happen. We now have vaccines that put part of the virus genome either into another virus or package it in a way that the immune system cells consider it as if it were a virus, even though it's not a complete virus. I have no fundamental problems with that. The only problem is if we engineer these artificial envelopes for viruses to protect the mRNA that we want uh, to get into cells, to infect the cells, kind of, uh, that that mechanism is not very well understood yet. So there could be adverse events coming from this creation of an artificial uh, enclosement to the RNA that we want to so, certainly, certainly that the lipid encapsulation system that is applied intramuscularly um, has gone through way less testing. If someone in the food industry wants to bring uh, a lipid nanoparticle to market, they have to go through extensive um, 
um, nanomaterial testing um, systems, often using animals, but um, using doing full um, metabolism studies, ADME studies, etc., full toxicological profile. And it seems that 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 whole process has been fast tracked to an extraordinary extent for these novel. Uh, Vaccines, but but yes. Yeah, so so from the in terms of the nucleic acid, the genetic information, you don't have too much of an issue. Let us also now look at the idea of where you think mass vaccination will get to in terms of herd immunity. Um, you know, I, I think you you've um, certainly doubted that the very high level seventy percent plus coverage will ever be achieved. Um, if that is happening alongside naturally acquired herd immunity, surely your view would be that at some stage the the whole we will just move to to these coronaviruses just being part of the circulating group of viruses that we, we're exposed to, and particularly have problems in the northern winter and the southern winter. <laughs> Now you have raised so many issues, <laughs> but I don't even know where to start. Uh, it would be much easier if the questions were a bit shorter. Uh, yeah. So one of the issues is the 70% or something is, has no basis whatsoever um, that I'm aware of. Uh, as we discussed earlier, we need to increase the number of people who have Cross immunity, we have to double that about to get to the overall level of about 50%. Mm. That is our goal. Everything else is has no basis whatsoever in the data that is available. Uh, everything else are political figures that are being spilled out for some political reasons that I don't understand. So look, the, 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 we're, we're getting there. The, the, the key question is, if you look at the combination of naturally acquired immunity that's going on, people being infected, continue to be infected, together with the vaccination programs, when do you think we will see a settling down so that we can no longer claim that this is causing any significant burden to healthcare systems? Doesn't really matter if you get infected. We've found ways of shielding older populations or treating them early, whatever system it's going to be so that people can get back to normal. When do you think that time will arrive? The problem here is that the politicians somehow invested a lot of their ego into lockdowns as the thing that has to be done until we have vaccines and now the vaccines don't work. Uh, the way they were hoped for to work. Uh, not that any scientists would have believed it, but uh, with the politician, politicians would, were hoping for it. And now the politicians are somewhere in a deadlock. They cannot say, well, now we can give up the lockdowns because we have the vaccine, because the vaccine doesn't work. Not in that sense, uh, because the vaccine comes too late. There's always a new virus, a new version that escapes, and then you, you have to wait a couple of months until we have a new vaccine against it. And by the time we have a new vaccine, there will be yet another new strain. So that is a never ending story. We need something for the politicians to use as 
an argument why they can stop the lockdowns. And the only strategy that I see is to achieve two different things. One is to reduce comorbidities. If we don't have, if people don't have comorbidities, and I mean severe form comorbidities, they don't die of the, even of the, they may have a bad flu, but they don't die. It is the comorbidities that are killing people. Correct. That is one of the major factors. So if we are reducing comorbidities, that's obesity, that's type two diabetes, that's atherosclerosis, and a couple of others. But this is all long-term stuff. It's not something we can do overnight. It takes years to do that. And in fact, no, pu public health years. public health programs for that have been spectacularly unsuccessful. Now, okay, let's first talk about the aim mm -hmm. and then how we get there. Because if we can't agree on the aim, let's first agree on that. Sorry, I'm a bit of a scientist here. Uh, I want to do this step by step. So we want to reduce comorbidities. Right now, with the lockdowns, we know that uh, people get more and more obese. So the lockdowns even have negative effects there. Reducing comorbidities would be one strategy. Another strategy would be to prepare people for becoming infected and reducing the spread of or the replication of the virus. And the reason for that is we are not dying of the virus. We actually could live with that virus forever and we wouldn't recognize that we are infected. We would just produce a couple of viruses on the side and we can handle that. It's, it's not a big deal. Cells can do a bit more, just produce a couple of viruses aside from whatever else they're doing and they, the cells would be fine. The problem that we have is that after, once the incubation period is over and the immune system has antibodies, the, the immune system is flagging all infected cells to be killed by killer T cells. And if many of cells have been infected, that killing, killing all of them creates a huge wound in our lung and other parts of the body as well. It's that huge wound that people don't survive, especially those who have comorbidities and who have more inflammation than other people have. But that, that's the same with, with any viral pneumonia or, or influenza that, that kills people. It's, it's the cytokine storm and the, the body's attempt to deal with it that creates it's the problem. the cytokine storm or it is the bacterial infection that comes after the virus infection and we die of that bacterial infection. And whatever it is, reducing the number of cells that become infected would be goal worth achieving. Correct. And now, now I'm talking Prodomo. My company and or me, we have developed a nutritional 
supplement strategy to achieve these goals. But if somebody else comes with a different way of achieving the same goals, that would be fine as well. I wouldn't be this. Okay, we try to do our best we can, uh, but it's not something that is impossible. It is something that can be done. And I see that as a way to give our politicians a way out of the situation. They could say, okay, now we have a strategy, we can give this powder, this whatever it is, to people who think that they're vulnerable and they might die, they might, uh, don't want to have a severe phenotype. They can take it to be prepared when they get infected. And if we have that established as a strategy, the lockdowns could end. Well, because that would be the alternative yeah. that would prevent hospitals from overflowing. If we have managed to make the disease less severe, we have also reduced the load on the hospitals. Well, this this is, I mean, it sounds, uh, and we'll talk uh, considerably more about specifically your um, cyclodextrin technology. The If we look at an example and we understand the politics that we're dealing with, we work very closely with the vitamin D and vitamin C and zinc issues. The the ironic thing is you can see consistently. I mean, a big study conducted here in the UK shows that um, 40% of people in care homes actually have circulating vitamin C levels that are at the level at which you have um, diagnosable uh, scurvy. Um, if you look at uh, intensive care units pretty much all over the world, you'll see a very strong correlation between people who have very... Um, low circulating vitamin D status. Yet, those politicians who've actually brought this to the table, um, and you can mention, say, a high-profile um, politician, now a backbencher, David Davis, who's been carrying the flag on, on vitamin D in the UK, he's been shut down because it's viewed as being confusing for the public when you're trying to roll out a vaccine to suggest that there is a nutritional supplement that people can take that might protect them. It is a prevention strategy. This is all any of us have ever said. If your vitamin D status is low, surely bring it up. And of course, what the government then does is is suggest that you take the, you know, the the, the four hundred IU um, NRV daily recommended dose, which of course has not been verified to have the immunological benefits that much much higher doses say, in the order of 5,000 to 10,000 international units would be required. So there is a, quite a history already of nutritional interventions being shut down. So perhaps if you can start first of all telling us about the nutritional supplementation strategy that you're working with, and secondly, if you can go on to looking how you anticipate getting through the proof of concept, the trials, developing the arguments for scientific plausibility, feasibility, credibility? Uh, again, a long story. Uh, uh, let me try to remember at least some points of those that you raised. Hmm. The first is, it is very clear, lack of vitamins, including vitamin D, is not good and makes you more susceptible. On the other hand, we have seen people in Japan 
um, dying of COVID, and they definitely have not, they have enough vitamin D because of all the fish they eat. So having more of it doesn't necessarily make it better. Although yes, we should have, make sure that everybody has enough of the vitamins and minerals uh, because that is, gets you to a baseline level and then you can do other things on top of this. The problem with all these vitamins and um, minerals is that their action is not very specific. And so you cannot tune them and target them for a particular situation. And once you have, as I said, everybody having enough minerals and vitamins is not enough to prevent, prevent people from ending up in the hospital and dying. You have to target the mechanism, have a mechanism of action that is a bit more targeted to the particular form of condition you're dealing with. But I, I think, I think just, just on that point, um, vitamins, minerals, and many botanical constituents um, never really can be seen in isolation. They are resources, they are information for the immune system. And if the immune system does not have that information, it is compromised. And we have also additional information to show that uh, people who have comorbidities, often for multiple reasons, complex reasons in terms of either the intake levels or the requirement levels, um, are deficient one way or another. So I think it is deeply disappointing scientifically, I believe, that, that governments have not really looked at nutrition sufficiently. And, and we've seen this before, even in acute crises such as Ebola, um, they did not look at nutrition. I was actually working with the um, Sierra Leone government on that. And the minute the vaccine came along, they, they axed the nutrition programs. So it, it's, it's, it's not well understood or well recognized. And some of us would say that that is also down to um, the lack of patents that exist for these. So um, take us on to the, the specific psychodextrin um, approach that you're using and why this is so different from taking a humble vitamin or mineral? Okay. Viruses don't live. Viruses are just dead genetic information packaged in a lipid hull. And protein often, yeah. Mostly lipid. So they need to be taken in by cells actively, and then the cells replicate the virus. The intake of viruses into cells is governed by a process that's called endocytosis, getting into cells. Endocytosis is necessary, but is sometimes we have lower levels of endocytosis, for instance, when we are fasting, because when we are fasting, there's less to endocytose, and there's also less of what the cells need to regulate endocytosis, and these are certain phospholipids. Now, if we are reducing phospholipids in serum to the level that you would have if you eat fewer eggs, fewer meat, fewer whatever, then you have less endocytosis. And if the less cells have less endocytosis, they have less to lend or to give 
to the viruses. Because whenever something, we, something is scarce, then our cells prioritize. And they would say, well, I need this here. These are things I really need to take in. These viruses here, I don't really know who that is. I don't need them. Uh, they can wait. So that's a natural process. We evolved over millions of years uh, to find that right balance. And starvation is something that was the norm until just a um, few thousand years ago. So we can deal with that very well. So if we are reduce the willingness of cells to lend their capacity to viruses, we are reducing the replication of the viruses and the severity of the disease. And this is where the genetics that we have done have shown us that the cyclodextrins that you have mentioned, when they are in circulation in blood, they're collecting phospholipids. They're reducing the amount of phospholipids that are around, and therefore they're reducing the amount of endocytosis in the same fashion that you would have if you would eat less eggs and meat. And so we have a natural way, just filtering out the phospholipids to restore a situation that is similar to intermittent fasting, um, to, which is known to reduce the risk of uh, dying of virus infections. So we are mimicking this and we have something that is helpful. And now what? You could say that that's competing with, is competing with uh, Walter Longo's um, fasting mimic, mimicking diet. Um, he's got uh, a series of products that, that aim to do a similar thing and obviously trigger um, autophagy. Um, the downside is it's a very expensive program to, to get involved with. Um, presumably, one of the advantages with your approach is that it would be a low-cost approach. Yeah. As I said before, what I'm proposing is not something entirely new. There are different ways of achieving that, and his, his approach could be one of those. Um, uh, but if you give the cyclodextrins directly, you're targeting this very specifically, because that is the function the cyclodextrins have to lower the phospholipid levels. And phospholipids are, less phospholipids are what we have if we do a vegetarian diet, or if we are fasting, or I don't know exactly what his diet is, but I would presume uh, there would also not be too many phospholipids in it. Uh, the advantage or the uh, how we have advanced that is that typically cyclodextrins are not being absorbed from the intestine. So you have to be infused and in over several hours. So in, right now they're going into clinical trials for Niemann-Pick disease. So the children who have that disease need to be chained to the bed overnight, every other week, and get an overnight infusion with cyclodextrins. What we have developed was a combination of cyclodextrin with another natural product, and that is capric acid, a component of milk and coconut oil, uh, which allows the alpha-cyclodextrin to be absorbed from the intestine 
and then you can just take it orally with every meal you take a bit of the cyclodextrin and uh, you are done you don't have to be chained to the bed brilliant so um, where have you got to in terms of understanding this relationship with um, viral infections and in particular SARS-CoV-2 we know that as i said the concept that that viruses need to hijack endocytosis is nothing I have invented. This is well known. So this is just how viruses get into cells. They said they are dead, they cannot dig in there themselves. Um, they have to entice the cells to take them in. And so what SARS does, they bind to the ACE2 receptor that you may have heard. And once they bind, that is the signal for the cell to take them in unless the cell has something more important to do. Yes. And because if the cell thinks uh, I have something else to do, then they don't take the virus in. But, but of course, that, that, that also means if you've got a, a flourishing uh, innate immunity, so your mucosal immunity is working very, very well, as it does tend to do in children, um, you, you also would, would, if you like, have less of a gateway open to your cells through via your airways and your ACE2 receptors? Okay, human immunity is complex and not everybody talking about it understands it. We have essentially three layers of immunity. One is the mucosal immunity, the natural immunity that we have from very early in life. And that is not specific to any particular virus. So if something looks like a virus and the cellular immunity uh, is, then it's the role of the cellular immunity not to let the virus in. Uh, sometimes the viruses get in nonetheless. And then we have neutralizing antibodies. They bind against the virus and cause the virus to be eliminated because they put a flag on the virus and then the macrophages are coming and eating the virus. If that fails and the virus gets into a cell, the cell is actually taking the viral RNA and expressing it on the surface to let the immune system know what the cell does. And if this immune system realizes, and the immune system has antibodies, and if the immune system has antibodies against these virus particles, then the antibodies flag the cell to be killed by killer cells. So we have these three levels of immunity, and for a reason, because viruses are complex and none of them works all the time, and so we need all three of them. And if we have them, that's working well. Look, I absolutely agreed, but it, it's still an argument to have broad-based health that allows um, a very responsive innate immune system. Um, th there are many people who, who I, I mean, the, the very fact that we have um, people with comorbidities uh, who are so vulnerable, their, their innate immune system as well as their adaptive immune system is less effective. And, and that requires, I mean, there's a huge amount that we can do um, with nutrition. So back to the cyclodextrin strategy, um, you, you've clearly got 
a plausible mechanism. Um, you are clearly beyond proof of concept. Um, can you just let us know where you are, obviously, in order to make an approach to a government to say, look, um, let's let's broaden the strategies that we're using. My My major concern with all of this is that people still seem to be chasing silver bullets, that there's an idea that, um, you know, you either need a drug that works or you need a vaccine that works, and you ignore all the things that um, healthy immune systems have done for the millennia it's taken us to get to this place, and all this knowledge is is cast aside. Um, but so what um what how are you going to persuade governments that this is a useful strategy clinical trials are pretty key money to pay a lobbyist that would be easy yes i don't have the money to pay a lobbyist and that is a problem uh, the pharma industry is interested in making vaccines because that's what they have the technology for and they are paying lobbyists to convince the physicians to think about vaccines. If you don't have a lobbyist, the politicians don't think. Yes. That's a problem. Yes. And if you come with something where the perception is you cannot make that much money, then you don't get the lobbyists. And if you don't have the lobbyists, you don't have the ear of the politicians. Yes. And an additional problem, I mean, we, we, we are connected with a lot of um, individuals and companies who are working with some very innovative natural um, products that, that um, have either already benefited, often when they're used in concert as a, as, a, as a group together. The difficulty that many of them have because of the world we now live in is that if they go public with, for example, small-scale trial data, which is as much as they can afford, there is a very high risk that they get shut down because, um, you know, and, and they then are, are unable to access any further money to, to do more trials. So um, we have a real duality in the way in which research is being done that inevitably chases um, a small number of silver bullet type solutions, some of which, as we're seeing with um, vaccines being outsmarted by the current virus, um, really not being that successful. So we have to find ways of broadening um, the base of approaches. And again, the fascinating thing within the um, natural health community is that many, many people, knowing how innocuous many of these natural substances are, they're willing, regardless of what their government is telling them or what their, their doctor is telling them, they will take nutritional products. So... Um, if, if someone wanted to go tomorrow and buy your cyclodextrin product, could they buy it? Not now. Okay. So it's because, as I said, the you can buy cyclodextrin. Yeah. It's actually, has, in Europe, it has an approved health claim. Alpha cyclodextrin has an approved health claim to reduce postprandial, so after eating spikes of insulin in the blood level, which are a sign of prediabetes. Yep. which is a cofactor for COVID. So in Europe, we have an approved health claim uh, for alpha-cyclodextrin. The problem is that alpha-cyclodextrin per se 
does not get absorbed from the intestine. So it doesn't get to do the job of collecting the phospholipids in serum uh, that it needs to do. It only does it if it's taken with milk or with coconut oil. And even then it's difficult to make sure that the capric acid from the milk and the cyclodextrin are always at exactly the same location in the intestine. Because if they are even a couple of millimeters apart, then they, the capric acid doesn't get the cyclodextrin in. And that is also a natural way. Milk contains capric acid to get maternal antibodies, which are really huge to get maternal antibodies from the milk into the bloodstream so that the maternal antibodies can help the baby to fight viruses and before the immune system of the baby is ready to make its own antibodies. Yeah. So we're, these are natural processes, but you have to make sure that they really work together in the way that is optimal and that is one of the problems that we have with nutritional supplements or dietary supplements, that they are often being oversold, that often the mechanism, why you have a combination is not totally clear at all. Mm. So you have vitamin C and zinc and echinacea, and that is, how are they supposed to work together? Oh yeah, they're all good. Mm. And, Oh, we have seen people who, take, who took it and they survived. How do they work together? Is that really the best combination or the right combination for this particular disease? That is often not quite clear. You don't get that information with the majority of nutritional supplements. And that is part of the problem that we have because they're routinely being oversold. People are losing their confidence in it. And then if you have something where you actually can pinpoint and precisely say, we have these two components and we keep them together because they together have a particular type of interaction. Uh, that is something that people don't understand. Yeah, I, 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 I think um, taking the examples you've taken, that, that there, there are actually extensive data showing that each one of those, certainly on their own, have uh, um, you know a, a lot of clinical data supporting their usage. Um, often it's at, at um, considerably higher doses than a lot of people are using. Um, I, I think you know one of the difficulties looking at synergy of nutrients is where where there isn't a if you like a molecular binding of the product. They are discrete, just the same way that a healthy diet is made up of thousands of different chemical components. And we know that when we combine certain combinations of of, of dietary ingredients together, we have a healthier diet. But we're, we're we're really not very good with reductionistic science at looking at the effects of mixtures. We're exposed to pollutants um, every day where most of the ones that have been proven safe have been studied in isolation, and yet we're exposed to mixtures of these pollutants every day with no real understanding. We wonder why people are getting you know, cancer as readily as they do or COPD or other, other problems. But um, yeah. An example here, yeah. and that's right to that problem. So if you take alpha cyclodextrin per se, and you look a couple of hours later into urine, you don't find it. 
if you take alpha-cyclodextrin with milk, you find some. Yeah. And if you actually make sure that the capric acid and the alpha-cyclodextrin are being held together chemically or physiochemically, then suddenly you find even more. So you can actually say, yes, this combination, if you don't combine them, it won't work. Yeah. But if you combine them, suddenly it has a, a totally different effect. It gets into the bloodstream and then you can also find so that, that's a, a, that is putting phospholipids. You also find the phospholipids in urine. So, you know, yes, it's acting, it's collecting phospholipids and you're excreting phospholipids, reducing the levels in urine and therefore reducing endocytosis. So you can study that. So even though these are nutritional uh, components that are normally in food, it's important to make sure that they are really together, physically together, because otherwise they don't work. No, understood. It's a true synergistic interaction. So look, I'd love to finish off on, on one more question, um, which is, where do you think we will be in one year from now? Um, in terms of the pandemic, um, and then I might even ask you, where do you think you will be in terms of your work with psychodextrin in one year from now? But let's, let's take a, a crystal ball to the issue. Um, where will we, we be in terms of the pandemic in one year? Okay, if we continue to respond to each new version of the virus with the new lockdown, we will be exactly where we are where one year ago. We will be next one year ahead. We will be at exactly the same point. We have to stop that knee-jerk reflex of lockdowns or other forms of mitigation. And this is why I have been thinking about what is it we could offer the politicians who were looking for the silver bullet and vaccines wasn't it. Can we give them something else that they could accept as a solution that would allow the lockdowns to end? And once the lockdowns end, it will take three months and it will be over. Now, will the governments stop the lockdowns within the next year for this whole thing to end? Who knows? If they do, it will end. If they don't, we will be at the same time, at the same point where we were a year ago, where we are now, and we will be at the same point a year ahead. Yeah, no, understood. Uh, the complication from the politicians' point of view is that they believe that they are getting advice from uh, people who share much of the same background that you have in epidemiology. and they have the same background, but they're being paid. And if you are, now I'm lucky in a sense that I'm not paid by the government. Mm. I, when you read papers in the field, what you have is you read the, the, the results and you read the first part of the discussion and you say, yeah, that makes all sense. And then there is a switch somewhere and then the discussion continues and says that's why we have to continue the lockdowns mm. what yes there was, there was no 
no, it's, it's totally unrelated. Yeah. But you see exactly, if you understand the field, where the scientist says, well, if I publish this without the right political conclusion, my next grant will not be funded by the government. And if my grants are not being funded, I'm back to what the university pays me. And right now, your salary is not hard money. Your salary comes from your grants. So if you don't get the government grants, you don't have a salary anymore. And that's a very strong incentive for people who are still active in universities to always say what the government wants, because that is the best way of making sure that they get paid. Yeah, no, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head there. It's, it's, for me, it's been very disappointing to see the quality of some of the science, even very, uh, you know, uh, high-ranking journals like the Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine. The, the results that you see in the studies does not necessarily meet with the conclusions or the abstract of the study because the... You know, and the principle of the null hypothesis being tested, um, that, that's uh, an idea that seems to have been cast to the wind. Um, it is a disappointing um, development and, and obviously um, accelerating the whole process of peer review or in, even sidelining it has been a further problem in terms of the quality of some of the science that we're seeing. But um, it's great to, to see someone making a call for nutrition, um, and it's a brave call to make, considering some very well-known nutrients have, have pretty much been sidelined. So, um, so j just the extension of the last question was, where, where are you going to be in relation to your psychodextrin research in 12 months from now? Presumably, your, your clinical trials, you'll have more data by then. Um. We are not doing clinical trials. We do drug discovery based on genetics. And then we're out licensing. And what I, I want a year from now, I want to look into some other diseases and found, learn something else from the genetics. Yeah. So it's not, I don't want to make a living uh, just working on alpha cyclodextrin uh, or on methanamic acid as I did before in autism or on something else. Um, I want to go back to find out thing, new components in the etiology of diseases uh, that don't have good treatments so that we find treatments like a treatment to prevent children who develop autism from becoming nonverbal. Here's something against age-related diseases that is um, here, one, COVID is an age-related disease because only old people die from it. Uh, but the same problem of too high levels of endocytosis are, play a role in cancer, in neurodegenerative diseases, in cardiovascular, cardiometabolic diseases. Uh, so there is a lot more to do than just this here. And I hope, sincerely hope, that the whole COVID story will be over soon. Yes, because I mean that I think it's a point you've made very clearly. The idea of putting all of your attention and so much of the medical profession and the political system, the economic system, in the direction of one disease, um, we're already seeing some very clear evidence that that more people are dying as a result of the indirect.
consequences of COVID strategies. So, um, yes, well, let's um, absolutely agree on that. In a year's time, um, people have must have come to their senses so that we don't see uh, more needless death. Um, Professor Witkowski, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much indeed. Thank you for having me.